When was the first time that uh, your husband or wife told you that they loved you? Uh, were there fireworks at that moment? Uh, maybe you don't remember. I had to ask Christina about this. So apparently I said I love you at a friend's house uh, in Pittsburgh at the time at an uh, apartment in Pittsburgh. I don't really remember it. So does that make me a bad husband? Maybe. Yes. Okay. All right. So I... I thought it might have been a time that we were walking in Grove City, but she told me um, that that was when she told me that she loved me, which is interesting because if you do the math, there was a time gap between when I told her that I loved her and when she told me that she loved me. So I guess she had to think about it a little bit. So I, I wonder, I, I don't really remember the moment, but I wonder what she was like when, when I said it. You know, maybe she was like, oh, how nice. You know, I don't know what she said. Or, or you know, or maybe thank you. You know, I'm, I'm sure, I'm joking. I'm sure she was kind uh, with it. But actually, maybe it's better that it takes a while. Because then I know that it's, it's not obligatory or flippant that she had to calculate this first. And then it's sure that she actually does love me. Well, whether you say I love you to a spouse, whether you say it to a child or parents or friends, saying I love you to the people that mean the most isn't really a once and done thing. What if I looked my daughter Maria in the eyes and I said, sweetie, I'm only going to say this once, ever. So listen closely. This is special now. I love you. Now don't forget it. Um, she probably would remember that. And hearing it one time is better than not hearing it at all. But hearing I love you only once is sad because what would happen when her memory of the I love you would fade throughout the years? She might wonder if the message was really true. She would probably long to hear I love you again. And be reassured by her dad, be heartened by her dad. Maybe I'd get mad at her. And she'd need her father to say, I love you again to give her assurance. Maybe she'd rebel for a little bit and need to hear, I love you again to soften her heart. Maybe she'd break up with a boyfriend and need to hear her dad say, I love you. And maybe somehow that would ease her pain. On her wedding day and all her excitement, perhaps I love you would add to her joy. I love you belongs all throughout the, the moments of life because it assures and it strengthens along the way. Precious truths do that for us. They assure us and they strengthen us along the way. Some words need to be repeated often because with repetition come assurance and strength. Repeating some words might be redundant, but repeating precious words of truth isn't. For some very special words, repetition instills comfort and hope and sureness in us. Repetition fortifies the truth in us. Hearing precious words over and over again can also invigorate us when we're tired, when we're beat down, when we're unmotivated. John has skillfully repeated one theme throughout his gospel, in order to assure us and strengthen us and even to give us a sense of urgency. The Greek verb pistuo means to believe, to trust. And it shows up in the book of John 98 
times, 98 times, John repeated and repeated and repeated the theme, believe, because he wanted the truth of Jesus Christ to penetrate deep into the hearts of his readers and to give them life. John told stories of the magnificence of Jesus so his readers would know and believe. He aimed his stories at building faith, assuring faith, and leading people to life in Christ. And he does this from, a per- from the perspective of a man who knew Jesus, who interacted with Jesus many, many times. And in John 21, 1 through 14, John told another amazing story about Jesus. That fits into the major theme of his book. That Jesus of Nazareth is a man. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God crucified and risen from the dead. And he has revealed himself alive multiple times to many eyewitnesses after he was raised from the dead. He is who he says he is. John wanted to give his readers solid historical evidence to remove all doubt from their hearts in hopes that the truth of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, would lead his readers to believe and have life in the only Son of God. It's the same message that we have heard from the beginning of John, but it comes through this fresh and unique story. Now, why does John want you to believe what he wrote about Jesus? What's his motivation? Well, it's simple. John loved the glory of God and his readers and wanted his readers to have life in Christ. He he says this to us. John used repetition to drive home the point of the certain reality of Christ crucified and risen and, and he used repetition to call all of his readers to believe the message that he had for them. John wrote so that people hear about Jesus, believe in Jesus, get saved by Jesus, live by Jesus, die in Jesus, live forever in Jesus. And through it all, God gets the glory. God alone gets the glory. The repetition of John tells us where the heart of John is. Now, what specifically does John want you to believe about Jesus? We've been studying these truths throughout the book of John. John wants you to believe that, number one, Jesus is a man. Jesus is a man. By Jesus, John means Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth, the first century Jewish man who lived and ministered in Palestine. Doesn't the verse go like this? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Flesh, bones, blood, you can see and experience. Number two. He wants us to know that Jesus is the Christ. Think about this. For around 4,000 years, God's people anticipated a Messiah, anticipated a Savior, anticipated an anointed one, a chosen one, chosen by God. Come and rescue them. John wrote to prove why Jesus was that anticipated anointed one, was that anticipated Savior, was that anticipated Messiah. Number three, John wanted us to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. John desired to show you why it's rational, why it's reasonable, why it is perfectly okay to believe Jesus is actually the Son of God. And so what John does is he invites you into his life to see 
clearly what John himself saw. Jesus did amazing signs, which confirmed his self-proclaimed identity as God's son. And number four, John wanted you to believe that Jesus is the risen Lord, risen from the dead. Jesus is risen from the dead. John gave details of how Jesus died, how Jesus was buried, that his death was confirmed, he was put in a tomb, and he told us how he was resurrected. Now, what do you expect from a man who saw Jesus alive after the crucifixion? Well, you would expect him to write that down and to pass that incredible news on. Look at John 21, verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. What did Jesus reveal? He didn't reveal something about himself. He revealed himself. There's a difference. John clearly meant that Jesus revealed himself alive to the disciples after he had died on the cross. The again in verse 29 that you'll see means Jesus revealed himself alive multiple times. Jump down to verse 14. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Now, John 21, 1 through 14 is what we call an inclusio. An inclusio is, quote, a literary device that repeats words or themes at the beginning and end of a section. So take a look. Verse 1, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples. Jump down to verse 14. A third time he was revealed to his disciples. And in between verses 1 and 14 is the story of how Jesus revealed himself to his disciples the third time. But the point overwhelmingly is that Jesus showed himself alive again. The first time was in John 20 in the locked room. Other people were there with the disciples. The second time was later in John 20 in another locked room. John mentioned only three appearances, but there were more. Acts 1 verse 3 says that Jesus appeared to them during 40 days. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul mentioned that he appeared to Peter, the 12 disciples, 500 brothers, James, the half-brother of Jesus, all the apostles, and Paul himself. And don't forget that Jesus also revealed himself to Mary Magdalene and other women. The point... John wanted you to know that Jesus was alive after he had gone to the cross and after he had emerged from the tomb and that many people interacted with Jesus during a nice little span of 40 days. It is always good to hear yet again that Jesus is a man. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And he is alive And to hear it from a man who watched Jesus die and then talked to him a bunch of times after he resurrected, that's truth worth repeating. That's truth worth hearing again and again. Some words need to be repeated often because with repetition comes assurance and strength. Repetition fortifies the truth in us. We need to hear it again and again, and we must keep believing Now, I like this story in John 20 because it's down to earth. It's manly. And uh, it's completely amazing what happens if you study it closely. John told another amazing story so that you may believe in Jesus Christ. First off, this happened by Lake Tiberias. 
or the Sea of Galilee, a freshwater lake in northern Israel. Lake Tiberias is fed by the Jordan, which comes in from the north, and it exits from the south. The lake is currently about seven miles wide and about 13 miles long. This means that in our context, it was after the Passover festival had ended and the disciples had returned to Galilee, their home. So let's walk through this story verse by verse. Verse 2. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Here are seven of the remaining 11 disciples. And they were together. Their names in the scripture can be somewhat confusing. So you have to study and line them up. And you'll find out that some of them had multiple names, like Simon Peter, same person. And that happened with some others. So let's make sure that we know who's part of this story. Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel of Cana, who many believe is also Bartholomew. The sons of Zebedee, who are they? James and John. And then two unknown disciples. We don't know who they were. So John, who's writing this book, was part of this amazing day by Lake Tiberias. We know for sure that Peter, Andrew, James, and John were professional fishermen. So at least three out of the seven were professionals at at fishing. Verse 3, Simon Peter said to the others, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into a boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now, when Peter said, I am going fishing, uh, do not think in your mind, Andy and Opie, grabbing the poles and heading out to the pond. That's not what was happening here. This is much more in-depth. This was a bunch of men heading out on a boat, on a big lake, to toss a net for hours trying to catch some fish. Now, a quick aside. This is really interesting. In 1986, during a drought, two brothers, both second-generation fishermen, which is really interesting, found a boat in the mud in the northwest shore, on the northwest shore of Lake Tiberias. Then some archaeologists excavated that area and found in that area a first century fishing boat, just like the ones that the disciples would have uh, been on and used to catch fish. It's 27 feet long and seven and a half feet wide. Some call this the Jesus boat. You can look it up online. You can actually go and see this first century fishing boat in the Yigal Alan Museum in Kibbutz Ginnasar. I have no idea where that is. Somewhere over there. Uh, and and it, it could have actually been the same boat that they used, but there's no way to tell that. Jesus could have set foot in this boat that they found. We just don't know. The seven men headed out onto Lake Tiberias. They fished all night, and they caught nothing. Now, as a fisherman, I identify with that, catching nothing. We've worked long and hard. My shoulders are sore, and I, am not, I don't have anything to show for it. Uh, it's actually quite frustrating when you're in that, especially when your brother is the, the fish whisperer. They like jump into his like coat. They just, he's amazing. And he frequently outfishes me and sometimes it's just like, I just don't have it. So why were they fishing at night? Well, probably for a few good reasons. The nighttime water temperature was cooler and so the fish would come near the surface. It'd be easier to get them. And when you toss uh, the net in, they're not going to be able to see the, the net coming as easily. And also, any fish that they caught in the nighttime could be sold fresh at the market in the morning. And uh, so a lot of good reasons why they would fish at nighttime, verses 4 and 5. 
Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. So before we're too hard on the disciples for not recognizing that this was Jesus from the shore, we need to consider a few things. First, verse 8. It tells us that they were about 200 cubits. It's actually what the Greek says, 200 cubits. And a cubit is the length from about the tip of your fingers to your elbow, uh, which is approximately 18 inches. Now, I did a little experiment on my kids. Their cubits range from 6 inches to about 14 inches. Mine is about 19 inches. Uh, So you're looking at about 18 inches. So they were about 300 feet, about 100 yards from the shore. It would have been hard to recognize Jesus from 100 yards away. Second, the sun was just coming up, and so it wasn't fully light. Now, why didn't they recognize Jesus' voice? Well, again, they were 100 yards off. Jesus' voice probably would have traveled very nicely across the water to them. They would have been able to hear, but maybe not recognize exactly the voice of Jesus. Why did Jesus call these men children? That's kind of peculiar. Uh, Children was a term of endearment, and and I liken it to if I showed up at the Grove and a bunch of guys are there stirring the big pots and making soup, and I said, hey, boys, how's it been going? I mean, it's that type of uh, term of endearment. They're not boys, they're men. Um, Jesus asked if they had caught anything. Well, they hadn't. Verse 6 is really cool. Jesus said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Now, sometime this week, read Luke 5, 4 through 11. Luke 5, 4 through 11. Something very similar happened uh, like this here, except in Luke 5, they caught so many fish that the nets were actually breaking. And when they hauled the fish in, they filled two boats and the boats began to sink. That's how much blessing that God had given these, uh, these fishermen in Christ. Amazing. Uh, Here in John 21, Peter, James, and John were all there fishing that day. When the guy from the beach told them to cast the net off the right side, didn't they make the connection back to what happened in Luke 5? Right? And realize, hey, this is Jesus. I think he's giving us a good tip. We probably should listen. Well, I'll tell you this. As a fisherman, if I am fishing, casting all day and not catching anything... And an old-timer comes up and says, well, have you done anything? No, I haven't, no, I haven't gotten anything. Well, why don't you try over there by that rock? Now, I haven't caught anything. The chances of me listening to the old-timer, I'm going to cast over by the rock because I don't know if he knows the stream or not. He probably does. Who knows? So here you have these guys in a boat, professional fishermen, fishing all the time. They can't catch anything. This guy gives them a little tip. Are you going to give it a try after you've been failing for so long? Probably. So it didn't necessarily connect. Someone else might have just been uh, giving them advice uh, how to to manage the lake and look for the schools of fish. What gave Jesus away was what happened after they tossed the net off starboard. They caught so many fish, seven men were unable to haul the fish in. It was more than good fishing advice, in other words. It struck them. Now, why would John tell you this fishing story, a fishing story in the Bible? That's great. Well, it's not an ordinary fishing story. This is not like one that a fisherman is going to tell you today. Does anything about this story strike you as unique? 
Anything unique about this fishing story? Jesus knew where the fish were. Jesus knew where the fish were. He was the fish finder. We, we could say he caused the fish to go where he told them to cast the net. This fishing story showcases the supremacy and deity and goodness of Jesus Christ. All of the knowledge and skill of the professional fishermen failed all night. But Jesus came along and in a second he just gives them success. That's power. That's goodness. John was on that boat. And when this happened, he knew. Verse 7. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. He knew. He knew, he knew. By the process of elimination, this is one of the verses that lead us to believe that John is the writer of this book and that John was the disciple that Jesus loved. This, there's a good case to be made that we don't have time to unpack. But this is one of those key verses. What happened was so stunning for these men that John made the connection of what just happened. It is the Lord. It is the risen Jesus Christ. This does not happen in this boat after all of us excellent fishermen do this and strive and toil and catch nothing and boom, he puts us on it. It's, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. Why didn't John say to Peter, <laughs> we finally figured it out. We got on these things, didn't we? Man, Peter. Come on, we are good. Well, it's obvious their catch wasn't about them. Their catch was so amazing that only God could have caused that. This is what John Calvin nailed it. This is what he says. Listen closely, please. If we were always prosperous, whenever we put our hand to labor, scarcely any man would attribute to the blessing of God the success of his exertions. All would boast of their industry. And would kiss their hand. But when they sometimes labor and torment themselves without any advantage, if they happen afterwards to succeed better, they are constrained to acknowledge something out of the ordinary course. And the consequence is that they begin to ascribe to the goodness of God the praise of their prosperity and success. That catch wasn't about the skill and knowledge and effort and exertion of the professional fishermen. They had nothing. Their catch was all about the sovereign power and grace and goodness of Jesus. And is that not, my friends, a parallel to the Christian life? The Christian life is not about the exertion and goodness of the human will, but about the sovereign power, grace, and goodness of God. John told this fishing story because it illustrates the divine knowledge and power and goodness of Jesus. This story tells us what God is like. Now, this might sound strange to you, but as Cass read, Peter was stripped down for work. The, the Greek actually allows that Peter was naked on the boat with his buddies. Little weird. Or maybe he was simply scantily clad. Either way, he was not dressed in his full garb. Okay? Now, why? You've got to ask the question, why? Well, fishermen in the first century fished with nets from boats and often dove into the water to retrieve the nets back to the boat, hopefully full of fish. And keep in mind that they fished at what time of the day? 
It was at nighttime. And so this was before board shorts, all right? Peter had to work this out. He was a working man. And so he was concerned about getting the work done. When Peter heard John say, it is the Lord, which effectively meant it is the crucified and resurrected Lord Jesus Christ who is coming to visit with us again. Peter put his outer clothes back on. He secured them. Thank you, Peter. That's helpful. And he went swimming. Verse 7 says, Peter threw himself into the sea. Just tossed himself off the boat. Now, you might be the kind of person that kind of eases into the water. You know what I'm saying? You put your toe in and you just test it a little bit. You go get some snacks or a snow cone. You sit at the side of the pool and dip your feet in. And it takes you like an hour to get in. Some people, they come to the pool, they're up on the high dive and they're doing a cannonball off like within moments of, of getting there. So I don't know where you're at, but Peter was like the cannonball guy. He threw himself from the boat into the water. It's great imagery. Peter was, was an intense guy when you study his life in Scripture. He just hurled himself off the boat into the water so he could swim to Jesus and beat the guys that he left behind to do all the work with the fish. Um, who cares about swimming 100 yards? Who cares about pulling fish in and getting the boat to shore when Jesus is there? So Peter just poosh, excited, couldn't wait. The other six disciples, they're, meh, excuse me, they're less uh, impulsive. And they understood that the boat needed to get back to the beach. And so they took the boat back to the beach. Verse 8, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, but about 100 yards off. Peter swam. The other six disciples rowed back to shore, towing the rest of the fish. And D.A. Carson made an interesting point about this. He wrote this, quote, The fact that the narrator's perspective stays with the boat instead of diverting to the encounter between Jesus and Peter, is a small indication of eyewitness integrity. Eyewitness integrity. John wrote from the perspective of the boat because he was in the boat. He experienced this. And don't miss this. Little details like this can actually boost your faith and confidence in Scripture. This is a good historical document. It's, it's well documented. Verse 9 through 14. They invite you to imagine the scene on the beach. They invite you to smell the lake. They invite you to smell this fire and the embers. And they, it, it just draws you into the story to say, can you smell the fish that's cooking there? This is a great moment. Verse 9, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. So they beached the boat and... They saw that Jesus had built a charcoal fire, or you could say this heap of burning coals, and he had fish already cooking on this. And there was bread there too. Jesus had very thoughtfully started a hot breakfast for these hungry guys. Verse 10, Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So right there, just imagine the scene. The Lake Tiberias is beautiful. I don't know if you've ever been there. Look it up on Google Earth. Look up pictures of it. This is a, this is a wonderful scene. And uh, they're right there on the beach overlooking Lake Tiberias in Galilee. Jesus was cooking fresh fish, a hot breakfast, and telling them to bring more fresh fish from this supernatural catch that they had just caught. And they're going to make up even, even more fish there to eat. What a great moment. 
Uh, last summer, I believe it was, the, we went, our family went with the Millers up to their cabin, uh, Tioga County, up in Liberty, Pennsylvania. And there are some nice trout streams there, and so I broke away for a little bit, and, and I uh, caught some trout. And I kept two of the trout, and I brought them back. Uh, and so they prepared these trout, and they got them ready, wrapped them in tinfoil, and brought them out to this fire. Now, we have a fire ring that sits on this hill, and you will overlook their, uh, their little, it, it's a pond, it's a small lake, if you want to say that, but it's a beautiful property. We're sitting there on the hill, putting these fish right in there, let it go for a little bit, open it up, and the trout meat was just pulling right off the bones, and the, Jeremiah was like, man, I could eat all of this. He just loved it. It was a great scene, but it wasn't a scene quite like this. Uh, this was an amazing, amazing scene. These men were working hard all night, and Jesus had provided them breakfast. We don't know where Jesus got the fish. Did he buy them at market, bring it with him? Did he buy the bread? Did he just create it on the spot? I don't know. Maybe he just reached down in and picked out a fish. I'm not sure how he got it, but he had it, and it was ready. Verse 11, so Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn, not like it was before. Now, Peter had suggested going fishing. Peter was a fisherman, so this is likely his boat. So Peter went up and grabbed the net. He must have been a pretty strong and stout man to bring this amount of fish, 153 fish. That's a lot of fish. It's a lot of fish. Now, why mention the number of fish? Why is that important to John? Now, when you read about this, many scholars have offered odd explanations using weird math equations and attaching symbolic meaning to this number. And I just want to say, be very, very careful with that kind of Bible exposition or exegesis. As you study the Bible, don't look for novelty. Novelty will not take you in a good direction when, when studying the Bible. Novelty should never drive our interpretation of the Bible. Now, interpretation is difficult sometimes. Here's why I think John mentioned 153 fish. You test it out, see if this is reasonable. Why would professional fishermen be concerned about the number of fish? Easy. Two reasons. Inventory and amazement. Inventory and amazement. Inventory to sell the fish. Amazement because that's a lot of fish. That is a lot of fish. Fishermen are going to be uh, very interested in this. Numbers are important to fishermen. Curiosity alone would cause these guys to count the fish. Just be like, we got to see how many are here. That was amazing what he just did. Count them. One, two. There's like big heaps of fish. I don't know how they did it. But that makes sense to me. And don't 153 fish show the abundant good, goodness of Jesus? I think that's why it's there. Nothing fancy about that interpretation. Makes total sense to me. Maybe it does to you. But doesn't it point us to the right place of the goodness of Jesus? Verse 11. It also says that it was a net full of ichthuon. Have you heard of ichthus, the fish sign, Christian fish sign? Ichthuon megalon, big fish. Not small fish, not medium-sized fish, big fish. To a fisherman, that's important, big fish. The miracles of Jesus were never skimpy. He turned the water into what? The best wine. He multiplied five loaves and two fish in a way that satisfied thousands of people and still had 12 full baskets left over, never skimpy. 
Our God does not give skimpy blessings. He always gives lavish blessings in Christ. If all else fails and we have nothing and everything leaves us and everything of this world forsakes us, we still have lavish blessings in Christ alone. He is our abundant goodness. Verse 12, Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. Jesus tenderly served and cared for his men. Come and have breakfast. The risen Lord Jesus Christ said that. How infinitely good this is. When you look into your life and you see how Jesus has served you, does it reassure your faith in him? Think about all that he's done for you. Do his loving accomplishments assure you of his love and his care and his tenderness for you? I think we should count our blessings because in counting our blessings, they increase our faith. God is at work. I am thankful for this because God gave me that. I am thankful for pizza. I am thankful for chocolate milk. I am thankful for my kids. I am thankful for health. I'm thankful for that little red bird that perches across the street in that, uh, that green tree. I'm thankful for the grass that comes up. Those stinking little dandelions are so yellow, aren't they? God loves us, and I will kill the dandelions, hopefully, soon. My neighbors are probably like, what is he doing? Ruining our yard. Why didn't they dare ask Jesus who he was? Because they knew it was him. They knew. That means that what they saw in the past and experienced in the past, they were now experiencing in the future. Yes, this is Jesus. They knew him. The seven men knew it was Jesus. Please hear this very, very clearly. No hallucinations, no visions, no illusions, no fantasy, just seven ordinary men eating and talking with their risen Lord. This is quite an amazing story. That's why John wrote it down. He wanted you to hear about this, and he wanted you to know for sure that Jesus really is the man. He really is the Christ. He really is the Son of God, and he still really is alive. Have you heard that before? Well, it's good to hear it again, and to hear it again, and to hear it again. You see, this the skeptics, agnostics, atheists, Unbelievers, naturalists, materialists, whatever ists you want are going to come at you with things, trying to be skeptical about this. Well, they were hallucinating. They weren't really seeing. Yeah, over 500 people are hallucinating the same event with the same man. And you're going to look back on history and you're going to overturn people who were actually there. How arrogant of you to think that your 21st century perspective is enough to overturn eyewitness from the first century and we can date it. Back then. What, what are you doing? People believe. This is not hard to believe, and yet it's impossible to believe because we need the Holy Spirit to empower and to give faith. But just know, as a Christian, the evidence is there. Evidence is not the problem. The hardness of the human heart is the problem. 
Hearing about the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus over and over again assures and strengthens our faith. It assures and strengthens our faith. Something this good cannot be said just once. We need to keep saying it. We need to keep hearing it. We need to keep preaching it. We need to keep reading it. We need to keep telling our kids about it. Compare verses 1 and 14 again. Look at it. Repetition. Repetition. This was a very important point for John. Jesus revealed himself again. John thought it important to drive home the reality of the risen Lord. So God thinks it's important for us to keep hearing about the reality of the risen Lord. Every time we hear about our resurrected Lord, we hear in it God saying, this is how amazing I am. And he, my son, at my right hand is how much I love you. God will use repetition of this truth in your life, dear Christian, to assure you and to strengthen you along life's way. Keep hearing it. Keep believing it. Absolutely, some words need to be repeated often because with repetition come assurance and faith. Repetition fortifies the truth in us. Let the atheists and agnostics and skeptics and unbelievers dismiss this story as fairy tale. They continue to bear the burden of proof to disprove eyewitness account of John and others who were there who saw this firsthand. How arrogant to think that our 21st century view could just discredit theirs, and they were there. Never let the seemingly intellectual arguments of the skeptics shake your faith. Don't do it. Take heart. Because you're on solid ground to believe John. He was there. He wrote about this. Good stories. If you think about this, good stories are worth repeating. And somehow when we get together with family and friends and we repeat those old stories, you know those like special stories? They're like, just tell it again. Oh, did that happen? Oh, I remember that. And you make connections and, and it's just a great time. My family does that often. We've heard these before. Come on. We've heard them tons of times. But, but there's a way to hear those stories that's fresh. That's new that you're like, yeah, that is so hilarious that that happened. You want to hear them again and again. Every time we hear about our resurrected Lord, it is an opportunity to smile, to wonder at God, to believe and to treasure Christ above all things because he is all that he says that he is. Hear it again, my friends. Hear it again and believe it with all of your heart. Father, we thank you for this wonderful story. It's a fishing story, which some of us identify a lot with. And I just ask, God, that you would apply this to our hearts, our lives. Help us to think very critically and think logically and think reasonably about all that Jesus has done. But when it comes down to it, at the end of the day, it is your Holy Spirit that must grant us faith. That's Galatians 5. 22 and 23. God, we need faith, so give it. And help my dear brothers and sisters in Christ to hear this message yet again and to rejoice yet again that it is true and to believe it with all of their hearts. Strengthen us, God. We need you now in Jesus' name. Amen. We invite you to stand and sing with us. Uh, if you'd like to follow along in your hymnals, number 310, I know whom I have believed. Thank you.
you know, for, for farming communities and everything, he's got some great stuff in there. If you like to fish, this is one to really connect with. And every story along the way through Scripture, even in the Old Testament, it's pointing you somewhere and it's pointing you to a sovereign Christ. A sovereign Christ who is really, really good. Don't miss the goodness and richness of Jesus in a passage like this. Very easy just because of the commonplace of kind of how some of it is to miss his just magnificent goodness to us and to these men that he cared for all along the way and until the end. Many of them died as martyrs, from fishermen to martyrs because they went to fish for men and to win them for Christ. And so what a just an inspiring history that Jesus was taking care of all along the way. God has a message for you, and it is in the words of his scripture. Keep your nose in the book and allow him to speak to you and expect to encounter God every time you open the pages of that sacred book. Go and be blessed.